Hello and welcome to the Mind Your Leadership podcast. In the podcast, I will talk with thought leaders, CEOs and managers from various organizations about leading mindfully. We will learn from their experience and talk about how they implement mindful leadership in the day-to-day organization culture. So stay with us. I'm happy to invite Charles Morris to talk with us and share with us his experience. Charles is a learning and development leader and mindful pioneer at Microsoft. He's the creator of Mindful Growth, a four-day program built for Microsoft and designed to combine mindfulness and growth mindset. His approach to personal transformation blends his career experience in engineering leadership, graduate studies and research in secular mindfulness, deep personal experience in Tibetan Buddhism, and evolving interest in Carl Jung psychology. I actually met Charles at Wisdom 2.0 conference at San Francisco two years ago when I hosted a conversation about mindful leadership. It was really interesting. I'm really curious to learn what evolved along this year's from the last time we've met. So Charles, I'll be happy to hear from you. What is your personal connection to mindfulness? And if you can share with us your your journey a little bit in order to know your story and background. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. So my personal connection to mindfulness, um, it really goes back to, to the year 2003, 2004 in that range when um, I was a young adult, we'll say back then. And uh, really still in in this process of, of discovering who I was, how to make sense of the world. And through that, at that time, I, I felt a strong um, connection to just a, a scientific materialistic viewpoint. You could say I was trained in computer science and my bachelor's degree, I just graduated and, um, you know, felt like that made the world make sense. Mm-hmm until suddenly it didn't anymore. And I I went through some personal experiences, relationships, um, other things that basically told me like, wait a second, there's, there's more to human existence, to human consciousness, to our experience here than can be explained purely through atoms and molecules. And through that, You know, I I do feel like I had a slight mystic bent all the way through childhood, but it's not particularly encouraged, especially in the West. Uh And so that that part of me was kind of rekindled and it led me on a journey through um, what what some might call new age literature, books like The Celestine Prophecy, eventually finding my way to Eckhart Tolle Mm -hmm. and his book, The Power of Now. Excellent book. Yes, excellent. Um, And then through that, started to realize that a lot of these more kind of modern presentations were in some way based on Eastern philosophy, Eastern spirituality, and was directed at this book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying uh, by Sogyal Rinpoche. And so I picked up that book and really found a deep connection to what he was talking about, even though it was quite... Uh, esoteric uh, compared to a lot of other things I had read. 
And so through that, I really found a community, found a teacher in Seattle where I'm, I'm living mm-hmm. and uh, basically became part of this international organization that was created by uh, a Tibetan exile, uh, a monk named Geshe Kelsang. And, you know, thus began my, you know, long time personal exploration of Tibetan Buddhism, which eventually, I don't know how much we want to get into the to the whole story with the work world, but essentially for many years, it was a, it, w- it was separate or at least as separate as something like that can be from my work life at Microsoft. I was already at Microsoft through this whole time, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel like, you know, I, I talk about it sometimes as my secret weapon for many years. So it helped me in a huge way, survive, thrive there, be calm, be kind, be compassionate in a in an environment that all doesn't always um, evoke that in me naturally. Um, until about 2016 or so, when when you had a new so- uh, CEO come on board. I know we're going to talk about him uh, probably, and it, it suddenly became possible to talk about mindfulness in my actual work cons, uh, con, uh, role. And that's when I began to study secular mindfulness. I did this master's degree at, at Leslie, did some research, and then eventually over the course of a couple of years, transitioned out of engineering leadership and into human resources and learning and development where, I'm, where I am now. And part of my charter here is to help figure out where mindfulness fits into the grand scheme of things for Microsoft. Sounds amazing. So you said you lived like a double life, right? A personal life when you nourished with the spirituality and all the, the Buddhism and what you learned. And in, in the workplace, you didn't feel like you can bring your whole self there, right? You, you brought only part of you. And it's amazing to you when the new CEO, Nadla Satya, came, enabled you to bring your whole self to combine all the part of you and to bring them to, to fulfill them. That's really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there was a huge feeling of kind of, you know, here I am kind of thing yeah, in a more full way. And I think the other interesting thing, you know, for leaders listening perhaps is that it's not like Satya ever pulled me aside and said, Hey, you know, I hear you've got this mindfulness practice. I want you to go do this work go create this program. He, gave me permission, I use this word sometimes, not in an explicit way, but simply through his example, through the words he was using, words like empathy, um, concepts like growth mindset. And he used them from a place that was clearly authentic from his side, that was that were spoken from the heart, that told me this was okay, this was the time for Microsoft. Wow, it's really exciting to hear it because it feels like beyond these words, you really fa- it resonates within you. It's about time to bring your complete self and to fulfill mm-hmm. this part in the workplace and to serve others from your abilities. So it's really, yeah. wow, it's, I can feel this excitement that the moment it is here to show up mm-hmm. so with your uh, true colors, right? You don't need to, yeah. to hide anymore, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, yeah. In, in, other circles, you know, in, in mythical or union circles, people, you know, we talk a lot about vocation and calling. Mm-hmm. And it, it certainly felt like pull, an inner pull that I could not, you know, it almost wasn't even a choice. It was like, okay, I have, I have to do this. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, it may not make, it may be a risk. It may not make, you know, standard career sense uh, in terms of the, the usual ladder that we think of climbing, but it was absolutely what I had to do. Amazing. You, you talked about Satya Nadler, the Microsoft CEO, and mm-hmm. I've read his book, Hit Refresh, when mm-hmm. he talked about the growth mindset in Microsoft culture, which you implemented in your program. Can you share with us about this program and give us more information? I'm really curious to hear about the program and how it resonates in your culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so very early on in his tenure, uh, Satya selected, well, first of all, he, he made culture the core part of his job, which not all leaders do because mm-hmm. culture can feel like this thing on the side that, oh yeah, and I have to think about the culture, but really my job is driving sales or driving technology or what have you, the, you know, the quote unquote core business. Uh-huh. But he realized, I think very correctly, and I think many leaders, you know, he's obviously not the first one, you know, there's Peter Drucker's famous quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast, but he, he truly took it to heart and realized that, you know, Microsoft is such an incredibly diverse business. He can't possibly understand and, and make it all happen on his own. But what he can do is create an environment, help create an environment where everyone can be at their best. And if he does that, then Microsoft and the world win. Mm-hmm. And so first thing was put, truly putting culture first. And then the second thing was really to select concept or framework to center this cultural transformation around. And for this, as you mentioned, he selected, or I'm guessing him and some advisors uh, selected Professor Carol Dweck's uh, concept of growth mindset. Uh, which is described in her book, uh, you know, quite famous book, Mind- Mindset. Can you elaborate and word about the concept that if people don't... Yeah, absolutely. So that, to me, the essence of growth mindset is this idea, she has this quote early on in the book, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase since I don't have it directly in front of me, but she essentially says, you know, even though we as humans are, are different in many ways, and we all have our own innate... qualities we are all we, we can all change and grow even to our most basic qualities through what she called application and experience and so the real focus of her book was really getting people out of this mindset of I am fill in the blank I am good at fill in the blank I am bad at fill in the blank Mm-hmm. It's these labels, which she called fixed mindset. She really felt hindered us in so many ways in life. This is the way I do things. This is the way we do things. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of this conversation stopping type sentence that is just a label. And what she encouraged instead was the opposite, growth mindset. And it, you know, one of the examples that uh, really st- struck home for me as a parent was How we speak to children mm-hmm. you know rather than saying things like wow you're really smart or you're you're really talented at soccer and so the story she tells was when if if children hear this oh, I'm really smart or I'm really I'm a talented soccer player or musician then they feel like that's just an innate part of who they are mm-hmm. and there's nothing necessarily wrong with having a connection but they, they get this kind of fixed, mindset about it naturally and then what happens was 
when they fail their first test or they don't make their first sports team tryout or don't win the music recital. It's like, what happened? I, I was told I was smart, etc. And so she goes on to, to basically describe how if we just understand ourselves as constantly in evolution and, and adapt our language the way we relate to ourselves in that way, then there's amazing benefits. Yes, I think uh, regarding the fixed mindset, she also talked about the, the fact that if I'm smart, so I won't want to try again, because if I will fail, what does it right. mean? So I won't right. try, so I don't try anything. And you know, especially in this COVID-19 situation, pandemic, that we need to reinvent ourselves and to try new things and adapt and uh, offer new offers to our clients, customer and community, we need to adapt the new growth mindset. Otherwise, we will be not relevant. So yeah, wonderful point. It. Yeah, it, if if we if we hold to our identity, I mean, it has it's very closely. You can even just in the way I'm talking about, you can start in the way you're building on it. You can see how it relates to core mindfulness concepts around identity and self. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, to the degree we we hold being smart or having a certain title, let's say in an organization, as who we are, then the less likely we are to. embrace anything that might oh. rock that boat as we say that might that might um, threaten that absolutely yeah so then, and that leads pretty naturally into how I saw the connection between growth mindset and mindfulness as I mentioned earlier part of her description says you know the way we evolve is through application and experience mm-hmm. uh, however she was I think rightfully so for for how she was trying to frame the concept as a very broad, concept she doesn't say and here is how you do it here's how you apply and get experience and so that was my opportunity to look and look and say oh well it's not that mindfulness is the only way to apply a growth mindset but it certainly is a powerful way to apply growth mindset when you think about application and experience that's basically what what mindfulness is about it's about practice it's about applying it in your daily life, gaining experience. And so I built on that and really said, okay, mm-hmm. mindful growth, which is the name of, of the program that I created is really, it really begins with growth mindset. In some ways, step one is relating to yourself as someone who's on a journey of discovery, of evolution, of growth. And then from there, uh, it's really about gaining the, the tools, the knowledge, the, the neuroscience, To understand how mindfulness-based practices can help you. And so part of what I do in this program, and is a, a passion of mine in general, is to talk about mindfulness as more than a wellness practice. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that to minimize the importance of wellness, um, or, you know, stress relief, just feeling better, kind of acute, you know, treating some of our more acute experiences. However, I do worry that mindfulness as it grows in popularity gets pigeonholed or relegated only to that realm. Mm-hmm. Because in my personal experience, and I think if you look at its application more broadly, it goes beyond helping you feel better. That's often the first step. But eventually, as you go deeper and you follow Um, maybe a different set of practices or just continue on your own path, you'll find that it, it starts to become inextricable from 
uh, again, a deep process of personal evolution and growth. And so that's what I really wanted to encapsulate into a program to the extent that, of course, you can encapsulate such a huge concept into a program. And so that's where, uh, you know, part of what I wanted to present to people is, hey, this is this is a set of tools. There's the foundations that everyone kind of needs to know. But then beyond that, it's really, there's no one way to do mindfulness. You can use it to develop many different qualities in you. You can use it in many different ways. It doesn't have to look like sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed. That's all right. When I facilitate the MBL course, an organization, like I offer there like 15 kinds of meditation because I really believe that each and every one will connect to one tool that works for him. That's amazing because mm-hmm. you don't really need to use all the tools. Also, I don't use all the tools, but one tool that I feel that works for me, that's great. So like it's like an opening a window to this world, right? Because it's really a yes. journey. As I see it, it's really a journey. I really uh, agree with you that it's beyond only being calm and uh, focused. It's beyond that. It's really transforming ourselves to be our best self we can be and to fulfill our calling and to bring our mm-hmm. presence to the world. And, and then, you see, I see it like being in the flow situation. So I'm also mm-hmm. and productive, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I, and I really think it's the, the solution for the wider generation and the new generation that are really looking for meaningfulness in the day-to-day, mm-hmm. not only mm-hmm. to work. So I think, as you said, it's really... Capture it a lot of things, not only one thing. So it's really broad. Yeah. Yeah. Great minds think alike. I, I put out 16 meditations, not, not to do one more than you, but we're right in the same ballpark. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. And um, I'm glad you used the word meaning because I think that's such a big part of what we're trying to bring to the modern work world. Not that it's been completely absent, but you know, it's pretty obvious that a lot of our systems are not particularly geared towards helping people feel, find and fulfill meaning. It's Mm -hmm. about productivity or, you know, job descriptions, grades, you you trace it all the way back through our education systems. And the word that, the word that Satya started using that helped me go in that direction was purpose, Mm -hmm. which is also closely related. But I I also talk about meaning and think that's an incredibly important concept whether you use you know whatever angle i think they're they're they have a lot of overlap um, to start having that discussion in the workplace um but it's challenging back to our our previous point uh Mm -hmm. it it gets us away from this idea that the way we work as a leader is to create job descriptions and find people who just fit like here you're going to do what i say right Mm -hmm. um as opposed to like let's have a, a dynamic conversation about what what calls you, what's your purpose, what where do you find meaning, and then how do we integrate that into the company's mission? Um, but I think part part of my belief is that if we do that well as leaders, then it's a win win situation. You actually get more creativity, more. Um, you know, we just think about you know you talked about flow and the level of creativity and ideas and work that comes out when someone's really in that state mm-hmm. uh, you know of course it benefits both the organization and the individual i agree with you because this is also what i often in my book and we really need to tailor today the jobs description according to the 
talent and the skill of their people. Maybe they finished fulfilling themselves in one job, but that now they want to go to the other one. So how the company uh, makes them stay from a meaningful place and seeing what's the next step and how it can benefit the company. And then it's a win-win situation, each and everyone to fulfill himself. And how people are reacting to your, to your course? Do you hear something? Uh, people talking, they're going through an experience, through a yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've had lots of amazing feedback. And so one thing I'll, I'll clarify about the program right now is that it is a self-selected program, what we call basically people choose to come. It is quite in-depth. Mm-hmm. And so it's a big commitment. And I feel like a big part of, of its success is, is that fact is that the people who come to the program are the ones who have sought, sought it out, found it, heard from their colleagues. It, it's almost a purely viral um, program at this point. And so I think that's part of why, you know, I'm, the people are ready. Like they want this and they've, they stepped into it. Uh, some of the feedback I think that to me is the most energizing and inspiring is when people talk about the degree to which it makes them, it's improved, not just their work life, but their personal life. Quite often they actually start with their personal life mm-hmm. um, and how it's made them a better parent or partner, um, child, you know, child to their parents, you know, it goes, goes on and on. I, you know, I, I think we all know the power of these practices when they are really taken in. And so then it became really a question to me of how to scale and what is the right way forward to, to not necessarily fall in love with my own program, so to speak, and, and say, oh, wow, I'm in this new position in, in learning and development. Mm-hmm. How can I use some of the budget or some of the political influence that I have now to like make it huge or hit some big number as opposed to what is truly the right approach that's going to benefit others the most so you're still uh, thinking about it you don't have a solution yeah i I don't think there's a simple answer to that program uh to that question sorry for the program my current direction is to for mindful growth itself i mean uh, because it is so in-depth and so mindfulness focused, mm-hmm. um, my current direction is to uh, build it as a community uh, kind of decentralized program. So I'm in the process of training up more facilitators, creating facilitation materials so that um, we can basically grow organically. Um, but then, you know, on the other side of my job, there are opportunities to talk about mindfulness concepts or integrate mindfulness concepts into more broad, um, broadly scaled programs. And I think one of the things, you know, I'm sure you've discovered in your work as well is that um, the word mindfulness doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. And yet the concepts are universal enough that we can bring them in, not in, in a, kind of subversive or malicious way, but in a way that is more acceptable to more people using different words. And so, for example, we have a practice at Microsoft that we um, we train all of our managers in called press pause and zoom out. Mm-hmm. It's a very friendly language. It's about catching yourself in that moment when you're very reactive. You know, from a neuroscience yeah. perspective, we talk about, uh, you know, being in a f- fight or flight uh, state 
amygdala hijack, all that stuff. But it, it wraps it up in this very kind of simple concept that doesn't feel like, oh, I need to take on some dogma, which is sometimes what people get when they when they hear the word mind- mindfulness. Similarly, one more example really quick is we are in the process of creating a program uh, to help people communicate in a way that's aligned to our company values. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we're uh, bringing in the nonviolent communication framework. Yeah. And assume that you don't have to go too far into NBC to start to see a lot of mindfulness type concepts, you know, really need for deep self-awareness for empathy. So again, ways to, to bring in concepts, even ways, to, and, you know, maybe also uh, starting to bring some, some core mindfulness practices in more broadly as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I really agree with you. I also had a conversation today with an academia that wants to bring, with, but they don't like the term mindfulness. So, you know, it was also the same conversation we had. Okay, we can bring it without saying the mindfulness and maybe we are bringing the core meditation practices, but you can bring it in other channels in an authentic manner, but, you know, in a way that it will resonate. And I also agree with you, like in my MBL course, it's also my um, assumption that people need to choose to come to this course because, you know, the essence yes. of mindfulness is this free choice. Otherwise, it's contradictory. It work. The mindfulness. As I see it, when people are going through the course, from my experience, they are going through a transformation. It's, and it's amazing because then you don't need if mm-hmm. people feel something different and they want also to come. And yes. I agree with you that it also starts with the personal aspect. People... At my course, one of the participants stopped smoking. And mm-hmm. I saw him six months afterwards, and I was afraid to ask him if he still doesn't smoke. But I asked him, and he didn't. And another yeah. person stopped smoking. It was really, wow, amazing. I said, wow, it really had an impact on him. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. really gone, the calm and the focus and the productivity. It really transformed people. And then it really goes organic. I think this is the way to bring it. I agree with you. So it resonates deeply. Yeah in the culture. Yeah, probably one of my most humbling pieces of feedback was someone who came back and basically said that their their marriage was falling apart. Um, and through this program, he's been able to repair um, that relationship. And that was just incredibly humbling to, you know, to be a part of that. I Again, I tried to share that, that he did the work and uh, I just helped to provide a little. He, he was ready. Wow, it's really touching and inspiring. Mm-hmm. Can you pl- elaborate about the, the need for mindfulness during these challenging times of COVID-19, mm-hmm. tension in the U.S.? Yeah, I think actually this, this touches really well into what we were talking earlier, which is, you know, COVID has, to me, there's two sides to COVID. Well, there's many sides to COVID, but for, for this discussion, maybe I'll stick to two. One is the, it's kind of that, that the triggering nature of it, Um, whether that is because we are now surrounded by our family all of the time, whether we had a bunch of plans that were canceled, whether we're seeing things on the news of people doing things that we disagree with, it has this kind of, you know, triggering nature um, to put us put us again into this stressed state. 
And so there's kind of this immediate need and at Microsoft and elsewhere, I've, I've seen this upswell of like, oh, wow, now we need mindfulness. And so I think that's kind of the obvious piece where, where it can be helpful. I think the less obvious piece is, again, a little bit what we talked about earlier, which is once we pull back from the grief and all of the other emotions that come with the immediate reaction, I think we can step into a space of viewing COVID as an incredible opportunity. I mean, if we would have asked ourselves what it would have taken to just stop. I mean, I, I know not everything has stopped, especially those of us who can do our, our jobs virtually, but in, in many ways, it feels like life has stopped. And I, you know, I talked about press pause and zoom out earlier. It's kind of like a global press pause. And so in that moment, I think it's, it's very important to rush, uh, to not rush towards getting back to quote unquote normal or getting back to the closest thing to normal that we can come back to and really facing that uh, unknown, that fear. You, you talked about it earlier as a leader at risk. Um, you know, I think fear is, is probably the, the core uh, emotion state of being that we need to be able to sink into because usually when there's this much change, if we don't have some of these self-management tools, then there's enough, there's more than enough uncertainty. And so we, wanna, we want to lock down and make everything that we can control the way we like it, the way they used to be. And so it takes something more, something more courageous to take all of that fear, all of that uncertainty and, and add more through exploring possibilities, questions that are now coming up that maybe were not in our realm of consciousness prior to COVID and do that despite the fact that, that adding even more change might add more uncertainty and fear. Uh, into into ourselves, maybe even our organizations in the short term, mm -hmm. but really to understand that that it's a liminal moment between you know the old and the new, and yeah, I think our training can really help us to 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 explore and, and not of course change things for the sake of it, but to really be courageous in this moment to to think about what we want the new world to, to look like. Right. I, I agree with you. I think it's a powerful worldwide to really mm -hmm. think retreat from the yeah. day as we know it in order to come back differently. Yeah. And maybe I'll touch really briefly on you mentioned the racial tension in the U.S. in particular, but of course has become a global global phenomenon as well. To me, again, many, many different ways to talk about this, but maybe to just touch on one key one that I think mindfulness can, can really help us with, which is uh, empathy. And in particular, I, I think there's this temptation, this ease to fall into a certain camp, a certain side of the debate. And we are, you know, sometimes people use this phrase, we are on the right side of history. And that means everyone who doesn't agree is wrong, is in some form the enemy to be convinced, to be overpowered, as opposed to, you know, true empathy. And I think a lot of the training that some of the deeper mindfulness practices get us to around uh, what we call othering, 
um, make sense to your listeners, but essentially our, our tendency to view others as separate from ourselves, yeah. un, unrelated, unconnected. This phenomenon, even if we are quote unquote right, I mean, what does that even mean? It's not, we will never come to a place of peace and understanding with, with that fundamental posture of needing to overpower or needing to convince as opposed to truly being empathetic, seeing the interconnectedness, seeing the essential goodness in others as well, no matter how they may be showing up in a moment. Mm -hmm. And starting from that place, starting from place of curiosity, of conversation, of uh, connectedness, which is extremely hard. You know, I, I can say these words, but if you find yourself in a position with someone who is potentially angry and and says things that you just completely disagree with, um, and but I think because it is so challenging, that's why we need training. We need practices that bring this kind of mindset as deeply into our being as possible, so that when we're faced with those moments, we have the best chance to to rise to the occasion. Yeah. I agree with you and I agree that it, it's really challenging to be empathic and compassion because, you know, it can trigger us in our own mm-hmm. places. I think this is the practice, actually. Yes, usually. Feeling these feelings and being able not to be managed by them and to take a deep breath and connect to the broader picture to try to see beyond what the person is saying from where he's saying it and what he's mm-hmm. saying. So I think at the end of the day, it's a daily practice and yes. sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. Yes. Are, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, failure is a huge part of the process. And that's, you know, to, to maybe bring our conversation full circle, that's a huge part of what um, Carol Dweck encourages as part of growth mindset as well as like seeing failure as wonderful, actually celebrating it, understanding how it will help you develop be better next time. Yep, great. And this way we can grow and go forward. Otherwise, we stuck in our own place and don't change. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting for me to hear your thoughts and insights. It really touched me and really excited that you're doing this amazing work in the world in Microsoft and in the United States. Do you have something else you want to share with us, say for conclusion? We- I think mostly just thank you for the opportunity. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it's a, ver- it's a very interesting time and opportunity maybe if there are fellow mindfulness practitioners and people doing this kind of work in organizations Maybe I'll say a little something for this community, which is, I feel like, uh, and this is reflecting what a lot of how I'd speak to myself, which is to not be satisfied with just getting the word out there or getting people to close their eyes, you know, and take a deep breath, which is wonderful compared to where corporate life or organizational life was 10 or 20 years ago. But to really continue in, in much of the vein that we've been talking about, the opportunity that this moment is bringing us to really not just be satisfied with using mindfulness to help people feel better in the current system as it's constructed, the current institutions, but to really use it as a force to then build on that foundation of well-being to 
evolve to uh, push forward into into something different, which is which is going to take everyone. It's not just going to be the leaders. Um, it's going to be everyone who needs to step into that. So no matter where we are, there's there's something for us to do. Uh-huh. I think what you say that each and every one of us is a leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. For his own and for the community. So it's really mm-hmm. show up and take responsibility and to take this opportunity to grow and evolve. On their own edge. Yeah. I really hope that we'll be able to meet next uh, Wisdom 2.0 conference. You know, it, we'll see. Yeah. yeah, hopefully not on a screen. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Karen. Me too. This was Charles Morris from Microsoft. Hope you enjoyed and you're invited to subscribe to hear our next podcast. Thank you for listening and take care.